two young people, who had not long been married, were walking up and down the platform of a little country station. His arm was round her waist, her head was almost on his shoulder, and both were happy. The moon peeped up from the drifting cloudlets and frowned, as it seemed envying their happiness and regretting her tedious and, and utterly superfluous virginity. The still air was heavy with the fragrance of lilac and wild cherry. Somewhere in the distance, beyond the line, a corncrake was calling. How beautiful it is, Sasha. How beautiful, murmured the young wife. It all seemed like a dream. See how sweet and inviting that little corpse looks. How nice those solid, silent telegraph posts are. They add a special note to the landscape, suggesting humanity. Civilization in the distance. Don't you think it's lovely when the wind brings the rushing sound of a train? Yes, but what hot little hands you've got. That's because you're excited, Varya. What have you got for our supper tonight? Chicken and salad. It's a chicken just big enough for two. Then there is the salmon and the sardines. They were sent from town. The moon, as though she had taken a pinch of snuff, hid her face behind a cloud. Human happiness reminded her of her loneliness, and her solitary couch beyond the hills and dales. The train is coming, said Varya. How jolly. Three eyes of fire could be seen in the distance. The station master came out on the platform. Signal lights flashed here and there on the line. Let's see the train in and go home, said Sasha, yawning. What a splendid time we are having together, Varya. It's so splendid. One can hardly believe it's true. The dark monster crept noiselessly along the platform and came to a standstill. They caught glimpses of sleepy faces of hats and shoulders at the dimly lighted windows. Look, look, they heard from one of the carriages. Varya and Sasha had come to meet us. There they are. Varya, Varya, look. Two little girls skipped out of the train and hung on Varya's neck. They were followed by a stout middle-aged lady and a tall, lanky gentleman with gray whiskers. Behind them came two schoolboys laden with bags. And after the schoolboys, the governess. After the governess, the grandmother. Here we are, here we are, dear boy, began the whiskered gentleman, squeezing Sasha's hand. Sick of waiting for us, I expect. You've been pitching into your old uncle for not coming down all this time. I dare say, Kolya, Costa, Nina, Fifa, children... Kiss your cousin Sasha. We're all here, the whole troop of us, just for three or four days. I hope we shan't be too many of you. You mustn't let us put you out. At the sight of their uncle and his family, the young couple were horror-stricken. While his uncle talked and kissed them, Sasha had a vision on their little cottage, he and Varya giving up their three little rooms, all the pillows and bedding to their guest, the salmon, the sardines, the chicken, all devoured in a single instant, the cousins plucking the flowers in their little garden, spilling the ink, filled the cottage with noise and confusion. His aunt, talking continually about her ailments and her papa's, had been Baron von Vintage, and Sasha looked almost with hatred at his young wife and whispered, It's you they've come to see. Damn them. No, it's you, answered Varya, pale with anger. They're your relations, they're not mine. And turning to her visitors, she said with a smile of welcome, Welcome to the cottage. The moon came out again. She seemed to smile as though she were glad she had no relations. Sasha, turning his head away to hide his angry, despairing face, struggled to give a note of cordial welcome to his voice as he said, It is jolly of you. Welcome to the cottage. A Haunted House by Virginia Woolf Whatever hour you woke, there was a door shutting from room to room. They went hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure, a ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, Oh, but here tool. It's upstairs, she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered, quietly, they said, we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us. Oh, no, they're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say, and so read on a page or two. Now they've found it. 
one would be certain, stopping the pencil on the margin, and then tired of reading, one might rise and see for oneself, the house all empty, the doors standing open, only the wood pigeons bubbling with content, and the hum of the threshing machine sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs then. The apples were in the loft, and so down again, the garden still as ever. Only the book had slipped into the grass, but they had found it in the drawing room. Not that one could ever see them. The window panes reflected apples, reflected roses. All the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing room, the apple only turned its yellow side. Yet the moment after, if the door was open, spread about the floor, hung upon the wall, pendant from the ceiling, what? My hands were empty. The shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet. From the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat softly. The treasure buried the room. The pulse stopped short. Oh, was that the buried treasure? A moment later, the light had faded. Out in the garden, then. But the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun. So fine, so rare. Coolly sunk beneath the surface. The beam I sought always, burned behind the glass. Death was the glass, death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago, leaving the house, sealing all the windows. The rooms were darkened. He left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the down. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat gladly. The treasure yearned. The wind roars up the avenue. Trees stoop and bend this way, and that. Moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain, but the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window. The candle burns stiff and still, wandering through the house, opening the window, whispering not to wake us. The ghostly couple seek their joy. Here we slept, she says, and he adds kisses without number. Waking in the morning, silver between the trees, upstairs, in the garden, and summer came, in winter, in winter snow time. The doors go shutting far in the distance, gently knocking like the pulse of a heart. Nearer they come, cease at the doorway. The wind falls, the rain slides silver down the glass. Our eyes darken, we hear no steps behind us. We see no lady spread her ghostly cloak. His hands shield the lantern. Look, he breathes, sound asleep. The policeman on the beat moved up the avenue impressively. The impressiveness was habitual not for show, for spectators were few. The time was barely ten o'clock at night, but chilly gusts of wind, with a taste of rain in them, had well-nigh de-peopled the streets, trying doors as he went, twirling his club with many intricate and artful movements, turning now and then to cast his watchful eye adown the Pacific thoroughfare. The officer, with his stalwart form and slight swagger, made a fine picture of a guardian of the peace. The vicinity was one that kept early hours. Now and then you might see the lights of a cigar store or of an all-night lunch counter, but the majority of the doors belonged to business places that had long since been closed. When about midway of a certain block, the policeman suddenly slowed his walk. In the doorway of a darkened hardware store, a man leaned with an unlighted cigar in his mouth, as the policeman walked up to him, the man spoke up quickly. It's all right, officer, he said reassuringly. I'm just waiting for a friend. It's an appointment made 20 years ago. Sounds a little funny to you, doesn't it? Well, I'll explain if you'd like to make certain it's all straight. 
About that long ago, there used to be a restaurant where this store stands. Big Joe Brady's Restaurant. Until five years ago, said the policeman. It was torn down then. The man in the doorway struck a match and lit his cigar. The light showed a pale, square-jawed face with keen eyes and a little white scar near his right eyebrow. His scarf pin was a large diamond, oddly set. Twenty years ago tonight, said the man. I dined here at Big Joe Brady's with Jimmy Wells, my best chum and the finest chap in the world. He and I were raised here in New York, just like two brothers together. I was 18 and Jimmy was 20. The next morning I was to start for the West to make my fortune. I couldn't have dragged Jimmy out of New York. He thought it was the only place on earth. But we agreed that night that we would meet here again exactly 20 years from that date and time. No matter what our conditions might be or from what distance we might have to come. We figured that in 20 years each of us ought to have our destiny worked out, and our fortunes made, whatever they were going to be. Sounds pretty interesting, said the policeman. Rather a long time between meets, though, it seems to me. Haven't you heard from your friends since you left? Well, yes, for a time we corresponded, said the other. But after a year or two, we lost track of each other. You see, the West is a pretty big proposition. And I kept hustling around over it pretty lively. But I know Jimmy will meet me here, if he's alive. For he always was the truest, staunchest old chap in the world. He'll never forget. I came a thousand miles to stand in this door tonight. And it's worth it if my old partner turns up. The waiting man pulled out a handsome watch. The lids of it set with small diamonds. Three minutes to ten, he announced. It was exactly ten o'clock. It was exactly ten o'clock when we parted here at the restaurant door. Did pretty well out west, didn't you? asked the policeman. You bet. I hope Jimmy has done half as well. He was kind of a plotter, though. Good fellow as he was. I've had to compete with some of the sharpest wits going to get my pile. A man gets a groove in New York. It takes the West to put a razor edge on him. The policeman twirled his club and took a step or two. I'll be on my way. Hope your friend comes around all right. Going to call time on him sharp. I should say not, said the other. I'll give him half an hour at least. If Jimmy is alive on earth, he'll be here by that time. So long, officer. Good night, sir, said the policeman, passing on along his beat, trying doors as he went. There was now a fine cold drizzle falling, and the wind had risen from its uncertain puffs into a steady blow. The few foot passengers astir in that quarter hurried dismally and silently, along with coat collars turned high and pocketed hands, and in the door of the hardware store, the man who had come a thousand miles to fill an appointment, uncertain, almost to absurdity, with the friend of his youth, smoked his cigar and waited. About twenty minutes he waited, and then a tall man in a long overcoat, with collar turned up to his ears, hurried across from the opposite side of the street. He went directly to the waiting man. Is that you, Bob? he asked doubtfully. Is that you, Jimmy Wells? cried the man in the door. Bless my heart, exclaimed the new arrival, grasping both the other's hands with his own. It's Bob, sure as fate. I was certain I'd find you here if you were still in existence. Well, well, well. Twenty years is a long time. The old gone by, Bob. I wish it had lasted so we could have another dinner there. How has the West treated you, old man? Bully, it has given me everything I asked it for. You've changed lots, Jimmy. I never thought you were so tall by two or three inches. Oh, I grew a bit after I was twenty. Doing well in New York, Jimmy. Moderately. I have a position in one of the city department. Come on, Bob, we'll go around to a place I know of and have a good long talk about old times. The two men started up the street, arm in 